um, you're sort of the, the last people standing, I think. Um, we are very excited about this panel. I want to thank the International Coalition Sites of Conscience. Um, one of the many great things they do is connect people. And, um, you know, when I first pitched this idea, they are the ones who connected to me, connected me with all these wonderful sites and women on this panel. And um, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have an anxiety after <laughs> I leave today. Um, but it, it's really nice, as a lot of you have expressed this week, to connect with people with like minds who are struggling through some of the same questions that we are. And um, today we're talking about our organizations and sites that have been birthed out of these activist impulses and how we're incorporating those into or, or, or thinking about incorporating them into contemporary programming and using them as catalysts for social justice um, work and issues. Um, so um, we are going to try to keep our presentations as brief as possible. So what you're seeing, what you're hearing and seeing, just keep in mind they're, they're um, severely edited. We're just trying to show you a glimpse or one or two angles of, of what we do to really provoke discussion. So we're going to try to have the formats going to be that we have as much discussion as possible. So we'll see how the time goes. Um, some pretty interesting material. Uh, our first panelist is um, Isis Ferguson. Um, Isis is a cultural worker in Chicago, Illinois. She is the program coordinator at the James Adams Hull House Museum at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She translates her academic background in gender and cultural studies and black studies and women's studies into curation work at the museum. In her role as program coordinator, she develops imaginative and dynamic programming that supports progressive movement building and connects communities through art and justice theme engagements. She brings over a decade of experience working with urban youth of color initiatives to her work at the museum. Her cultural and community work outside of Hull House is devoted to feminist and artistic endeavors, and she'll probably be talking about these a little. Most dear to her are the projects Leftist Lounge Chicago, Venus Collective, and Ella's Daughters. Um, Hull House is, uh, I'm at Weeksville Her or was at Weeksville Heritage Center, and Whole House is one of our favorite places. We consider each other sister sites because all of our colleagues usually end up on the same panels and see each other at all the same conferences. So it's a pleasure to have Isis on this panel. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. I feel like I saw most of you in the lobby getting coffee with me. <laughs> Um, so Jennifer has kindly allowed us to go a little bit over our 10 minutes, so I'm very excited I get to share some extra tidbits that I wasn't planning on sharing. Um, so to start, um, I do want to say thank you for having me, and thank you to my co-presenters, Barbara, Barbara, Yolanda, and Jennifer. Um, so I tried to unpack Movement Creates Museum and figure out what we as a panel and a workshop were really collectively trying to examine. And I see movements as social forces. There's something disingenuous or unattainable right off the bat about a museum or a history institution trying to contain the life, the people, and the dynamism of a movement. Physical buildings as stand-in for past resistance, agitation, sacrifice, and victories against human suffering rings just a little false to me. So when I arrived, so what I arrived at for Movement Creates Museum 
is that engaging our histories with struggles for justice means engaging people, those who are still living and those who stand on the shoulders of the previous radicals, the contemporary agitators, the artists, the scholars, whose work is rooted in the tradition of the history at your site. Perhaps the more challenging dimension for a museum with activist beginnings is demonstrating the relevancy. Not preaching to the NPR listeners who think they know it all already, or the rabble rousers, or the dissenters in your communities, but to the unengaged, the disinterested, or the oppositional publics who may not even actually know that you have a space at all. So this morning, I want to share with you how Hull House, as a historic house, capitalizes on our people power, situates ourselves within movement building, and exists beyond the walls of our two buildings. For starters, the Jane Addams Hull House Museum is fortunate to have inherited a legacy of research, action, and social engagement from the Hull House settlement that is really quite distinctive for a historic house site. We're uniquely suited to engage in contemporary issues of social justice in courageous and fearless ways. Doing this doesn't stretch us outside of our mission at all. It is our mission. The issues that Adams cared about and devoted her life to are largely the very same issues that we're grappling with in national, cultural, and political discourses today. Poverty, immigration, labor conditions, food security, public health, social welfare, democracy, and peace, pushing past convention, engaging in a self-reflective approach that is honest about its missteps, and convening disparate and marginalized communities as legitimate knowledge makers drives Hull House to ask critical questions about social justice and compels us to take risks in our content, our process, and our partnerships. So what I'm gonna do is briefly talk about the content of some of our recent exhibits and programs, highlight the process we used in these interventions, and spotlight how we do these in partnership with community, which is really the concept of solidarity that I wanna introduce next. It would be perhaps useful for you to hear a very, very condensed history of the Hull House Settlement and the Jane Addams Hull House Museum. So as I'm sure everyone in the room knows, Jane Addams was a pioneer social reformer, an internationalist, a feminist, a peace activist. She's best known as being America's first woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize and for co-founding the Hull House Settlement in 1889. And I just wanna play a little audio clip of a resident poet we had in 2008 that describes Jane Addams and her work. Jane Addams' birthright wrote her among the wealthy. Her and Ellen Gates Starr and Florence Kelly and a bunch of their homegirls, white women who flipped, deemed crazy and prescribed bed rest, who moved into each other outside of marriage and single-family homes, who questioned the nature of domesticity. The homemaker is maker of culture, and the culture is broad like the people are broad-shouldered, hauling hours and jobs that should be valued like the jobs of bosses, and the fate of bosses and the people are the same because we live in the same house where we haul and haul our bodies into public space where all bodies should be clothed and fed and coddled and caressed freely by the hands of doctors and cooks, lovers and communists, American these hands, immigrant and chained, dirty and clean fingernailed, raw and stubborn, the home and public space blurred or extended like the good and goods a citizen should be offered. I thought that was a little more poetic than I could describe her, so. <clears throat> um, you. 
settlement houses were a kind of early community center that addressed changing urban conditions after the Industrial Revolution and worked to meet the needs of diverse populations, especially immigrants, educated middle-class, wealthy women and men settled in working-class working neighborhoods and offered an enormous range of classes and programs and worked on local, national, and international campaigns to end justice. Adams and the residents worked daily to create conditions for peace in Chicago's most diverse immigrant neighborhood from 1889 until her death in 1935. With Adams leading the charge, the settlement made the connection between dilapidated housing, crummy schools, segregated facilities, and meager wages to a larger system of exploitation and a fatally flawed democracy. An understanding of the political climate that remains largely unchanged in 21st century Chicago. By the early 1900s, Hull House had become a laboratory of social change, growing into a 13-building complex at its height and serving more than 9,000 immigrants per week. Writer, educator, and activist Bill Ayers had this to say about Adams. Of course, Adams has been sanitized and defanged with the rosy glow of history. But in her own time and place, she was a fighter and a builder, forging her own unique path as she created communities of care and compassion. She demanded much more of participants, she demanded much more of participants and of herself than doing good or giving help or providing services. Jane Addams rejected the controlling stance of the benefactor. She stood for solidarity, not service. She found a way to work with and not for people, to learn from, not about, their lives, to move horizontally and not vertically as she built the movement. Today, the Jane Addams Hull House Museum is a national historic landmark. It became a museum only a few years after 11 of the 13 original Hull House buildings were demolished in 1963 when the University of Illinois at Chicago was built. It didn't go from settlement house to its current state as a radical cultural institution. For many years, Hull House functioned as a research-oriented museum run by scholars who were passionate about women's history and worked to uncover the documents, the work to document the history of our site. These women worked to professionalize the museum by cataloging our artifacts, growing the collection, and contributing immensely to the body of research. Eight years ago, we had an institutional transformation when the museum hired its last director, Lisa Young Lee. She brought a new vision for the museum that would build upon the strong foundation of the museum's scholarly work and university affiliation, but she would throw open the doors to larger and more diverse publics than ever before. Her framework sought to enliven our site, a place that is committed to telling the history of Jane Addams and the progressive era reformers through the intersection of contemporary art, scholarship, and meaningful community collaboration. And she created a, pra a praxis for all of this to be done through a whole house tradition of activism that links struggles and issues. So how are we democratizing and actualizing history in our contemporary space? A bit about our process explains this. <clears throat> there are three metrics, which I shared the, the first night with the International Sites of Conscious folks, um, that we formally and informally consider with every project or initiative that we do. So first, does the proposed intervention connect past, present social movements and social justice issues? Secondly, does the project push us to experiment with different strategies or models of engagement? And thirdly, does the proposed intervention expand authoritative voice and narrative? 
So I can now shift to some specifics and tell you how this process was enacted in one of our recent contemporary issues. It's called Critical Whiteness. These are just some images of the different ways you can interpret a person and tell a story. So that's Jane Addams' Nobel Peace Prize next to her FBI file as the most dangerous woman in America. So um, this is Critical Whiteness. Um, this ex exhibition is still very much in flux and formation and challenges and interrupts the ways that whiteness remains invisible, unexamined, and potent as a dominant aesthetic and political force through a series of contemporary art interventions placed in the museum over the next few years. We're using different interpretive strategies and collaborating with a number of contemporary artists to create art interventions in the house. We opened the Critical Whiteness series with an untitled work of Felix Gonzalez Torres, a brightly colored installation consisting of 175 pounds of candy, meant to signify the ideal weight of his partner, who was diagnosed and died of AIDS-related complications. Visitors are encouraged to take a piece of candy. The exhibit, uh, for a short time in November and December of last year, was placed in the middle of the floor on the middle of the second floor in our contemporary exhibition room. A single quotation by Adams on a white wall acknowledging the gaps in analysis was made by her, the early reformers. Though Adams stood for solidarity, not service, and found a way to work with and not for people, to learn from, not about their lives, to move horizontally and not vertically as she built the movements, there were instances of cultural and class mis misunderstandings along the way. Blindness on the part of the reformers to fully recognize their privilege. So this is Adam's statement that we had on the wall about the incident and the holiday candy. Our very, uh, and it's called, could not bear the sight of it. Our very first Christmas at Hall House, when we as yet knew nothing of child labor, a number of little girls refused the candy which was offered them part offered them a part of the Christmas good cheer, saying simply that they worked in a candy factory and could not bear the sight of it. We discovered that for six weeks they had worked from seven in the morning until nine at night, and they were exhausted as well as sati satiated. So the horizontal framework, oh, sorry. Um, as a small staff, we're just five people, all white except for me, all of us US born except for one, working at a respected site of social justice, engagement, and inquiry, we have to be incredibly vigilant and aware of our cultural blinders, educate ourselves in our areas of ignorance, recognize our privilege as part of the University of Illinois at Chicago, and engage in meaningful and ongoing relationships with multiple stakeholders. We often talk about like the, our Hull House people and our Hull House family. That draws on the expertise of community organizations, projects, and individual artists. We have to move horizontally and not vertically as Adams instructed. The horizontal framework is captured in the teach-in model we utilized this summer for our public programs. The teach-in programs were rooted in a style of popular education, shared public authority, and the belief in community members as content experts and knowledge generators. So major developments in the legal and criminal cases with the addition of Asada Shakur to the FBI most wanted terrorist list and the acquittal of George Zimmerman spurred the need for these public events. As a site dedicated to preserving the legacy of Jane Addams and the reformers, we are situated squarely inside contemporary discussions of the criminalization of black and brown identities. And so I'm just going through some of the photos from the Trayvon Martin um, teaching right here. 
The brandishing of agents of change is dangerous and suspect and criminal, and the necessity to look at new models of justice and critical resistance. So as organizers of the two programs, we curated the speakers, collaborated with the community organizations and cultural workers who would serve as hosts, framed the conversation with activities and guiding questions important to our communities that we felt weren't being asked in a traditional context, identified reading materials and provided packets of resources to serve as alternative curriculum to mainstream analysis and coverage. We included artists, scholars, activists, youth and adult to share and contextualize through their specific art practice, lens, or discipline, to imagine next steps and solutions outside of the predetermined set of political responses we felt were circulating. So to close, I'm going to return to my opening assertion that movement creates museum is about people, not about memorializing or fossilizing, but enlivening history with serious things like critical inquiry, but also with delight, imagination, and wonder. The values that guide our work at Hull House are taken directly from the writings of Jane Addams. Her vision for the settlement is equally instructive and aspirational for us as a contemporary cultural institution. So I will leave you with her words and then a final send off from Bill Ayer. So Jane wrote, the only thing to be dreaded in the settlement is that it loses its flexibility, its power of quick adaptation, its readiness to change its methods as, as it in its environment may demand. It must be open to conviction and must have a deep and abiding sense of tolerance. It must be hospitable and ready for experiment. So then this. Solidarity asks us to recognize that the people with the problems will also be the people with the solutions. That there is no outside expert who knows it all. No lady bountiful waiting in the wings who can provide the answers. No foundation or government grant that can replace the wisdom on the ground. There are perhaps lessons here for us today, lessons about raising our voices in indignation and protest in response to injustice and human suffering. Lessons about acting to create a more peaceful, more balanced and just social order. If we choose to stir ourselves to act against the hard edges of injustice, we might, each and every one of us, become the men and women sweating out Jane Addams' hopes here and now. Okay, thank you. I just want to pull up for, is Barbara going next? Okay. Okay, we're gonna, thank you Isis, we're gonna hold questions to the end. Um, so our next speaker is Barbara Lau. Barbara Lau is the director of the Polly Murray Project at the Duke Human Rights Center, Franklin Humanities Institute, where she connects her commitment to justice with her belief in the power of community organizing. She is also the lead developer of the Polly Murray Center for History and Social Justice, 
a newly formed nonprofit organization focused on transforming Murray's childhood home into a center for history, education, the arts, and social mobilization. Lau's 20 years of experience as a folklorist, curator, radio producer, and author includes producing To Buy the Sun, an original play about Polly Murray, directing The Face Up, telling stories of community life, community mural project, and curating two major exhibitions about Cambodian American traditions. She was honored with the National Association of Multicultural Education Children's Publication Award in 2003. She is the co-recipient recipient of the 2011 Algernon Sidney Sullivan Award for Humanitarian Service at Duke University and the 2012 of the Carly B. Sessoms Award from the Durham Human Relations Commission for her leadership. She earned her bachelor's in sociology and urban studies from Washington University in St. Louis and a master's in folklore at the University of North Carolina. It's always good to be in the room with such amazing women. I was really excited to be invited to be on this panel and also to have so many of my fellow folklorists here and involved in a lot of this um, museum work, so it makes me feel really at home. Um, you know, many of the themes that I'm going to talk about are really similar to the themes that this is, you know, introduced about how these, these sites are so um, inspired by the words and work and vision of these amazing foremothers and fathers of the of social change work. And um, Pauline Murray is someone who is a lot lesser known than um, Jane Addams, but is a pretty was a pretty amazing person. And one of the things is we are really the baby of this group. <clears throat> we don't really, as she said, recent nonprofit, yeah, like July 31st, 2013. <laughs> um, so we are really in formation. And so that has really given us an opportunity to think about how we want to come into the world together. Um, and so as, uh, as was mentioned, this is uh, the house that Pauline Murray grew up in in our community in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I wish it still even looked this good. Uh, it, it needs a lot of TLC right now, but um, it's really given us a way to think about placemaking. And I think that this is really a, a big piece of what we're doing as histori history centers. I don't know if we'll ever be a museum, you know, if that's the identity we want, but really sort of that idea of, of history and community. Um, and we are currently trying to address 100 years of what one might call uh, environmental racism. The water from the white cemetery behind this house has been rolling under and destroying the foundation um, for a very long time. So uh, developing our partners to, to, to do this and to sort of bring this place into existence as a place, but in the meantime, creating place through our work and our conversations and our programs. So one of the challenges that we face is that Polly Murray is a really complicated person. She wasn't always nice. She wasn't always easy to get along with. She was the first person to tell you what you should be doing. Um, and she had a really complicated life. Uh, and I use these three slides. The one on the far side is her grandparents, both mixed race people, one born in slavery, one born free. Uh, you know, I always think about what it was like growing up in the household of these very opinionated people. Um, I grew up in Ohio. We always think after the Civil War, everybody moved out of the South. Oh no, 
Robert Fitzgerald moved from Pennsylvania to North Carolina where he met Cornelia uh, Smith Fitzgerald. Polly came to live with them because her mother passed away when she was three years old and her father was really unable to care for the six children. And five of the children stayed in Baltimore with, their fam with uh, his family and Polly was the one that was brought to live with her namesake, Aunt Pauline, one of Robert and Cornelia's daughters uh, to North Carolina. But lucky for us, uh, you know, she grew up in this household of very strong women, uh, very strong citizens, people committed to education uh, and politics. And, you know, they loved her. They loved her deeply, even when she showed up in ways they didn't like, uh, that they weren't comfortable with. And the second picture, Polly created this amazing photographic album of herself called The Life and Times of an American Named Polly Murray when she was in her 20s. And she dressed herself and she named herself and the pictures relate, you know, range from the crusader and the poet to the dude and the imp. So she was born Anna Pauline in the 1930s in New York City where she had just graduated from Hunter College. She became Polly. She struggled with her gender identity. She struggled with her, uh, her feelings for other women. Uh, she struggled with that, that in the context of respectability and the expectations that her African-American family had of her in terms of the things that she would accomplish. She went on to do work in law. In, she was a poet. She was a co-founder of the National Organization for Women. She was a prolific writer. Uh, she was the first African-American woman to be ordained an Episcopal priest. She never got into a college that she wanted to go to. She earned, I think it's six post, uh, you know, six graduate degrees in law, in divinity. Um, she was an amazing person, but she faced a lot of resistance. And one of the things we talk about when we talk about her is her goal was to be herself at all times. That sounds so simple when you say it like that. That is so hard. So what we take from her is this vision of what it means to create a world in which we can all show up as ourselves all the time. A complicated uh, but an interesting invitation, an invitation to collaboration, an invitation to finding the things that both bring us into conflict and bring us into commonality. So we are incredibly inspired by her, but what does that mean as we form this, or this institution and organization? So one of the things I thought about in preparing for this is, well, what does that mean? What does that, how do we position ourselves in relation to that vision and, and in relation to the fields and the, the communities in which we work? So we're part of the Duke Human Rights Center. One of the important things that, that they have set forth is the idea of doing human rights work at home, not just practicing but doing the work. And history is a really cutting-edge concept in human rights work. You know, who would think? I mean, that seems so natural to us. but. In the human rights work, when you think about people working in the legal realm, in social service realm, history is a really cutting edge concept. The same way that uh, doing human rights work is a cutting edge concept in the museum world. So, it, you know, we live in this intersection. So these are just some of the ways that we try to think about how we show up. How do we show up as ourselves all the time? And we've really learned that modeling is the most powerful teacher because it means you're doing it. You're not just talking about it. You're really trying to do it. And of course, it's our way of trying to be accountable to Polly and accountable to the mission. And we've certainly found 
that when we work in that way, when we do what we really imagine Polly might do or think about that spirit, the things we need come to us. Because we are, you're looking at our staff. We are completely soft money funded, right? We have interns and we, you know, growingly, you know, the be careful what you wish for, all of a sudden I have a three, you know, two-thirds time intern. I'm like, wow, how did that happen, right? You know, but I know that sounds sort of flip, but it really, these things, these resources have sort of shown up when we need them. So I wanted to just give you some, a little bit of an example of some of these things. As was mentioned, we uh, kind of came into being because of very long work that my, my colleague, Mamie Webb Bledsoe, who is here at the conference but not here today, had been doing in southwest central Durham with six neighborhoods that decided that their quality of life was connected. And so one of the things that they came up with is one of their goals was something they called celebrations and traditions. And part of the way that they wanted to recast in the sense of outsiders, how do people think about our neighborhoods and how do we think about our neighborhoods, was this idea of using history, using people they were proud of. So in building on that and trying to literally amplify the history of the neighborhood, we invited an artist named Brett Cook to begin working with us on a mural project. Now you have to understand that in the process of doing this, Brett is a very different kind of community-based uh, artist. And his 1,500 people participated in this mural project over three years. We didn't know at the beginning what we were going to do or what was going to come out of this. And as Brett says, the murals, the murals are the debris of our collaboration. Our goal is to create architectures in which people can practice community. So you'll notice if you ever come to our town, which I, of course, invite you all to do, none of them are signed. They're not owned. They're not his. So this process is fascinating because you take a photograph like this one of, of Polly. Um, he would create a drawing. The drawing would be projected. People would go to parties and where you see a line, draw a line. And then they would, we would take it down and take it to another party, and everybody got colored um, pastels, and we'd color it any way you wanted. This was not, here's my vision, help me create this. It was like, you color it. He would come back in his medium. He started as a tagger um, with spray paint, amazing Spanish multi, you know, these amazing spray paint. And he'd do what he called tune it up. He would add to it. He would not cover up what was, um, was put on it, whether it was inside the lines or outside the lines. And now this mural is on the front of a, an elementary school. So... We also didn't start out with sites. Most public art projects start out, well, here's our sites. It was like the sites emerged over the time that we worked together. We worked with a group of fourth graders from this school. And so when we were working on this, we went to the principal and said, can we put a mural on your school? And she said, yeah. She didn't call downtown. She said, yeah, now the murals there, they're permanent. You'd have to sandblast them to get rid of them. So it just it, that's where we grew from. Uh, the program I was working with at the Center for Documentary Studies was closing. Our new home became the Duke Human Rights Center, and we started doing more work. Again, I said, we don't have a building, a space, so we have to create our spaces in other places. And, you know, we wanted to find ways to, whoops, tell Polly's story. And so one of the strategies we used was um, commissioning an original play based on Polly's writings and journals. Now, because people uh, um, connect with Polly in so many ways, when we do programs, pe people from all those communities come, and then they find themselves sitting next to one another, hearing things that both make them happy and challenge them. So the play, uh, 10 performances, we'd love to tour it again. 
you know, issue of, of sort of funding and new actors and that kind of thing. But an amazing, amazing experience for people that's just been incredibly memorable. So uh, this is one way that we sort of think about different museum strategies, right? So how, does, how do we use different ways of telling stories, creating um, historical experiences, talking about historical context? You know, this, this play does this. Um, we also have been doing oral history work. My training is a folklorist and oral historian. And thinking about the stories of activism in our community, I don't know why it's doing that, anyway, that are lesser known, right? And so one of the things we started doing was to um, document the LGBTQ history of our community. And we had a very small group of people who wanted to do this, and we wanted to really pick a doable project. And so but we couldn't pick just three people. So we thought, well, what if we interviewed people of multiple generations who have a common area of concern? So we interviewed two people in the arena of culture, two people in the arena of religion, two people in the arena of activism of different generations. This is quite, you know, just, just because we couldn't think of how to narrow it. But what happened was we got to hear more about how our community had changed because these were people who were, who were telling us about what it was like 20 or 30 years ago talking to people who are tell, who talking about what it's like now, who didn't necessarily know each other. So we were, what was, you know, an unintended consequence of this was this amazing connections that people, because they would start talking to one another, right? You, we'd kind of just sort of step back at a point, and folks who were in the interviews would begin to ask each other questions, and that was just an amazing process. So this has been a slow-growing project as we have uh, funds and time. Um, so one of the ways we want to think about this is how do we talk about intersectionality, right? This whole big sort of ugly academic term that nobody knows what it means. And we don't know what it means, right? In the sense that what does it mean to organize from an intersectional point of view? And I was doing a presentation for our local human, rights, human relations commission, and I was like, I got to figure this out. And I was like, well, what about, you know, using a Venn diagram? And everybody got it. And the woman at the session, this was so funny, she looked at it on the slide. She goes, oh, I get it. You can't do that. <laughs> like, she immediately thought, well, that's impossible, right? So it was, it's been really interesting to use this when it's with kids or with grown-ups about what does it mean, where do we think of our work, and how does it mean, how does it talk about inreach, outreach, vision, design, it, you know, how do we guide this? So Pauli really lays this out in this 1967 letter to now. Don't ask me to divide myself. Integration and pull, you know, working from that center place is a matter of survival. So that's just been a powerful message for us. So <clears throat> one of the things that we want to do is to think about what do those, those architectures for practicing community really look like. So they range from, this was our proud shoes uh, labyrinth on the on the lawn of the house, right? So a, more of a ritual experience. People decorated shoes about what they were proud of. Polly Murray's seminal book about her family is called Proud Shoes, the story of an American family. Uh, cleanups at the house. A dialogue about, um, we do a lot of community dialogues about um, desegregation on the 50th anniversary of the, of the integration of our high school. And what, it, what does it mean for us to still be in that process? youth poetry work, uh, and a picture from the mural project. And then, you know, how do we keep this inscribed on our landscape? You know, one of the things is trying to think about sustainability. So we 
convinced the state of North Carolina that they needed a, a historic marker for Polly Murray. It's three blocks from the house. There's a series of murals um, in our community now. There's five of them. Most of them are in her neighborhood, in our neighborhood. Uh, one, this one, is downtown. And as Brett always said, you know, you, you look at all this art. Who is the model? What does the model think? What is the model saying? And so in his, his work, he asks us to think about that, um, you know, uh, in terms of putting words and text with all of the murals. So there are quotes from Polly Murray's text and uh, materials with all the murals. This is the one we call True Community. It's a, it's a section from an essay she wrote about uh, diversity in our Christian community. So there's many pieces of this that challenge us too, that challenge us as an organization. How do we organize ourselves in that vision? How does how we treat each other, how, how our transparent our organization is, how our, you know, we think about do we want to be a hierarchy, do we want to be, you know, all those things are questions that come up as we think about this work. And I think that it, you know, we are the students of the, the women who have come before us, the institutions like the ones being represented at the table about how other people have addressed uh, these kinds of issues and really try to do what they say they are, are doing. And, and again, model for the museum world, for the human rights world, for all of us, what it means to really embrace that work. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Yolanda Chavez-Leva. Um, Yolanda is a Chicana historian and writer who was born and raised on the border. She's currently the chair of the Department of History and an associate professor at the University of Texas, El Paso. Professor Leva specializes in border history, public history, and Chicana history. She has directed various public history projects focusing on the U.S.-Mexico border over the past decade. She is co-director of Museo Urbano, an award-winning museum without walls that reclaims, researches, preserves, exhibits, and interprets the history of borderlands, especially El Paso Ciudad Juarez. In 2009 to 10, she served as project developer for El Paso, the other side of the Mexican Revolution, a groundbreaking, ex a groundbreaking museum exhibit on El Paso's role in the revolution. In the past, she has directed an oral history project with the Socorro community and a Museum for a Day project involving UTEP, UTP graduate students and high school students, as well as the creation of a website called Border Public History. She is revising two manuscripts, Creating and Confronting the Border, Mexican Children on the Texas-Mexico Border, and Calling the Ancestors, Historical Memory, Indigenous Identity, and Chicano, Chicano History. She has published numerous articles in, on Chicana lesbian lesbian and border history and as a published poet. And as I was planning and trying to think through this panel in the early stages, she was my first contact who really helped me um, think, think this all through and bring us where we are today. I'm super happy to be here and <laughs> It, it has been inspiring and an honor to get to know my fellow activists, organizers, scholars on this panel. So
So I'm here today to tell you a little bit about Museo Urbano and how it emerged out of social justice work. And it emerged in a very specific place, El Segundo Barrio in El Paso. El Segundo Barrio, often called the Second Ward, is the second oldest neighborhood in El Paso. It is one of the most historic Mexican immigrant neighborhoods in the United States. It is in the poorest zip code in the United States. And it is a community that has been under siege for over 100 years. It is a place where thousands of people across the United States trace their roots, including myself. It was the place that, that held the first, quote unquote, Mexican school in El Paso, Aoi. It is the place that held the first Catholic church that allowed Spanish speakers in Sacred Heart. It is the place that was the cradle of Mexican-American businesses like the Jalisco Cafe. And it is a place that, as I said a minute ago, has been under siege for over 100 years. In 2006, a group by the name of the Paso del Norte group announced a revitalization plan for, for downtown El Paso. And they announced it amid great fanfare. People were very excited about their plans to revitalize downtown. Anyone who grew up in El Paso in the 50s, 60s, 70s remembered what downtown was like. We have incredible architecture, very, very beautiful buildings. And we were all very excited at this plan. The Paso del Norte group was founded by a man by the name of Bill Sanders, who's been called the most um, powerful landlord in the United States. He was from El Paso, gained his wealth in Chicago, and came back. So it sounded, it sounded very wonderful until May of 2006 when my co-director, David Romo, who is a historian and musician and amazing all-around organizer, discovered that there was actually a secret document behind the downtown plan. And you can see it says, not for distribution. And what that document says was that for El Segundo Barrio, which is just south of downtown, that the Segundo Barrio would be demolished. And in its place would be put um, Target, Walmart. They also talked about putting up uh, luxury stores, Starbucks. The street, the, the main street that leads from the bridge from Juarez to downtown El Paso goes through the heart of El Segundo Barrio. So the developers were thinking there's so much traffic on this street that we're going to make big bucks by setting up these stores. But I don't know, somehow setting up luxury stores in the poorest part of El Paso never made sense to me. But they had the plan to demolish, to demolish the neighborhood. When we discovered this document's existence in May of 2006, a group of historians, artists, community activists, lawyers, and residents immediately came together and we founded a group called Paso del Sur. The original name of El Paso was El Paso del Norte because it was the pass 
from the south to the north across the river. So we called ourselves Paso del Norte because we were looking the other direction. We were looking south and we were looking at South at Paso specifically. And we began to meet and we began to look at who were the, the Paso del Norte group. It turns out that they had a plan, or Bill Sanders had a plan to, to actually in their terms, developed the border all the way from San Diego, Tijuana to Brownsville, Matamoros. So it was a binational plan, and it Segunda was just part of that plan. So very immediately we began to work with the churches in it Segundo, to work with the farm worker center, to work with artists, and to begin to question these, these plans. The city of El Paso that, that year paid $100,000 for a company called Glass Beach, which didn't exist before and didn't exist after the creation of this branding plan. The $100,000 got them a report that said, and I, I picked this slide, that said that El Paso is old cowboy male, 50 to 60 years old, gritty, dirty, lazy, speaks Spanish, and is uneducated. This is what $100,000 got the city of El Paso. In recent times? 2006. Oh and they use this photograph of this elder. And if you look at the photograph, you see it's actually in Juarez. It's not El Paso. <laughs> we held community meetings, and when we showed this slide, one of the women in the audience raised her hand and said, that's my grandfather. So the slides, the, or rather the report said, this is what El Paso is, and this is what El Paso can become with development. Um, who it could become turned out to be Penelope Cruz and Matthew McConaughey. One of the city council members said that he would much rather have an El Paso full of Matthew McConaughey's than old men like his grandfather. So the city began to, to put out these reports. They began to have public meetings to talk about what should we do with El Segundo when it's demolished. At one point they actually had something like a monopoly game with boards on the tables and the streets laid out and you could choose what would be on each street as if people didn't live there already as if it was vacant, as if there were no consequences to that. So the community began to boycott, to picket the meetings, and Paso del Sud began to also pick up our, our activity. We worked with an art collective from Juarez, Colectivo Resiste, and they designed this symbol for us and, and we put it on t-shirts. They began to stencil it onto the walls in El Segundo. Uh, just to give you an idea of how, how much under surveillance everything is in El Paso. Fox News had done a report about this image showing up in El Segundo and oh, how can people from Juarez come do that in our city? So the next day the artist who designed it was bringing us a shipment of, of t-shirts because we were printing them in Juarez because it was more cost-effective for us. So he had them in his car 
and the customs officer who saw him had just seen the Fox report about the radical people in Juarez coming to Atbasa to do things to us, and he confiscated all our T-shirts as dangerous to the United States. So this work continued. We worked closely with Sacred Heart Church. One of the things that happened over and over again as we worked in the community was that people would ask us, why do you care? Why, why is this neighborhood important? And they said, we know why. We don't want the neighborhood demolished. It's our home. But why do you care? So many of us had familial links to that neighborhood. That's the neighborhood my family lived in when they first crossed into the United States. So we would say, well, you know, we're also, we're also connected to this neighborhood. But they said, no, but that's not enough. Why, why is this neighborhood important? And that's when we realized that people were hungry to know the history of that neighborhood. What had that neighborhood meant to other people before them? What did it mean to the history of Atbasa? What did it mean to the history of the border of the United States? To the history of Mexico, what did that neighborhood mean? So we began to think of creative ways to share that history with the neighborhood what you see on the left is the gym of Sacred Heart Church. It's part of the demolition plan. So eventually the city said they would not demolish the church, but they would demolish everything around the church. So the priest at the time welcomed us to do a mural, which you see on the right. And that mural told the history of the neighborhood. And it was created by two artists, painted by high school and elementary kids and whoever happened to be walking by that wanted to participate. And, and people began to say, oh, well, I didn't know that happened here. I didn't know this happened here. And it became a great way to share that history. And the church decided to relocate the priest and send him off to another state. Since there were so many people from the history department involved in Paso del Sur, and since I direct the public history program, I thought, hey, <laughs> why don't we bring this into the university? Since actually the students were doing so much of the work anyway, I said, wouldn't you like class credit? to do this work you're already doing. So, so in 2006 and 2007, we put out several editions of this booklet you see on the right, at Segundo Barrio, Una Historia Viviente, a Living History, where students documented the history of, of housing, education, of labor, of the constant attacks on the neighborhood. In the 1910s, the city had demolished much of the neighborhood and a newspaper reports that it looked like a war zone. And we saw that coming again. So in 2006 and seven, we began to publish these, these little booklets and give them out to the schools, give them out to the neighborhood residents, to nonprofits in the neighborhood. The plan slowed down because of all the, the public opposition to it and the change in the economy. The plan is still approved, but they haven't demolished 
well, they've demolished a couple of things, but the neighborhood is still there. In 2009, the history department got a grant to, to do something to commemorate the centennial of the Mexican Revolution. And El Paso is, despite what San Antonio and Los Angeles say, El Paso is the most important U.S. city when it comes to the Mexican Revolution because it's on the border, because we were a site of revolutionary thought for people who were exiled. So we were able to rent two tiny, tiny tenement apartments right in the heart of El Segundo Barrio, two blocks from the church. It had been the place where Teresita Urrea lived in the 1890s. Teresita Urrea was a 19-year-old young woman exiled from Mexico by the dictator. He called her the most dangerous girl in Mexico. She was the daughter of a 14-year-old indigenous servant and the much older uh, hacienda owner. She'd been raised by her indigenous relatives and was a, a healer. So we rented a place in the site where she lived in exile. It was also the apartment of Henry Flipper, who was the first African-American graduate from West Point. So it was a very historic site. And through the use of, of volunteers and students, we were able to create this place of community. We commissioned a mural that, that highlighted the Zoot Suit music of the 1940s, the very first million album-selling Latino musician grew up on that street, and in the 40s he put out uh, Pachuco Boogie. So we had this beautiful mural of him. As the neighborhood young men began to see us putting up murals, they wanted to put up murals. We ended up with 10 or 12 small murals of varying degrees of talent, various kinds of paint and various themes. But those murals drew the people into the courtyard in amazing ways. We had one mural about this big. It was very simple. It was the United Farm Workers Eagle. One day as I was sweeping the courtyard, because you're also looking at the staff. <laughs> one day as I was sweeping the courtyard, this, this older lady was walking by from church, and she asked if she could come in and look at that mural. And she pulled out a union card from the 1950s, pre-United Farm Workers, and talked about the strikes that she had been in you know, almost 70 years ago. So we had those kinds of things happen over and over again. We had to leave the space in January of 2012 because our landlord, who is a third generation tenement landlord, uh, raised the rent so high that I couldn't pay it. And she actually painted over all our murals so that they don't exist anymore. But it didn't stop what we were doing. We started out with the concept of a, a museum without walls or a museum of the street. So we said, well, we're going back to our initial concept of a museum of the streets. And we continued to work with uh, the Farm Workers Center. In February, we put up two historic uh, banners, two historic banners, one showing men on a street corner in 1920 waiting to be picked up for day labor, still what happens in El Segundo, and another of the Flores Magón brothers who were two of the 
intellectuals who were exiled from Mexico and came to El Paso. It's been a very amazing experience in, in, in developing words for our values. We've come up with respect, reciprocity, responsibility, and social justice as our values. Um, we've actually been quite liberated by not having a space because we can be everywhere. And I don't have to clean bathrooms. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I welcome you to look at our Facebook page. It's, it's Museo Urbano El Paso. Our, our website, Border Public History, is, is being remodeled right now. But uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be here, and thank you for your attention. I really wish our session was longer because I really want us to have discussion. So somebody watch me. I'm going to try to be as short as possible. Um, uh, I, uh, oh, my name is Jennifer Scott. <laughs> I'm an anthropologist and public historian. I uh, teach at the New School for Public Engagement bachelor's program in New York City and also at Pratt Institute. Um, and most recently, I was working as uh, the in-house historian and the um, the uh, uh, vice one of the vice directors of Wixel Heritage Center, which I'm going to talk about today um, for about 10 years, and I just I'm sort of transitioning away, which um, you know st I'm still sort of there it seems. <laughs> um, so Wixel's history. Um, I, I don't know if uh, you were at the keynote speech yesterday with Dudu Jen, but it, um, one of the things that he said really resonated with me with, with Weeksville um, in terms of just how important it is to create ideological resistance against this long process of dehumanization that's going on that's um, partly facilitated by all these silences and invisibility. And Weeksville Heritage Center, Weeksville represents this history that was completely erased from the books. Um, just a few kind of hints that this uh, uh, community existed. It was uh, um, forgotten until the late 1960s when um, the community in Brooklyn, New York, um, rediscovered it. And then it was going to be destroyed through urban renewal. So they fought to uh, defend it um, through a grassroots movement, save it, and restore it to its rightful place. So the, the center actually represents almost over a generation of community activism with keeping the houses up trying to um, restore them and trying to document this history and, and correct some of the erasures. So what I wanted to show you is just sort of a glimpse of how we're doing that. We're actually drawing on two histories, and we were trying to draw on them to create a um, contemporary program. We're, we're a very non-traditional museum. We're a very non-traditional historic house museum. Um, and um, a lot of the things that we've done at Wixville, people don't associate with the 19th century historic site. So hopefully I'll get to tell you a little bit about that. Um, this is Wixville Heritage Center. It basically consists of three historic houses that date from the 1840s to the 1880s. Um, the, the first house there, you see the double house, we actually have interpreted the interiors to different time periods. So the first one is the 1860s, the next one is the 1900s, and then the next is the 1930s. And the idea is to talk about neighborhood change through time. We talk about what was happening in New York, we talk about the inhabitants, we talk about what was on the national scene, we do historic house tours. Um, what you can't see in this image is that um, 
there's any, we have almost a full acre of land in uh, Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and um, it's this, this green space is currently being landscaped to 19th century agricultural features to help people to remember what it was like. What you also can't see far left end is that we just completed a $40 million new education and cultural arts center in June um, to expand all of our programming. So we have this kind of interesting mix between the historic and the modern that we've been trying to wrestle with. Um, okay. So through our tours, our programs, all of our activities, we, we interpret the, a free black community in the 19th century that was started um, right after slavery, end, 11 years after slavery ended. Where Weeksville is located is really important. It's an area of central Brooklyn, um, sandwiched between Bed-Stuy and um, Crown Heights. We're actually returning to maps. <laughs> so I found this one. Um, it was technically Bed-Stuy in the um, 70s and the borders have changed and now it's Crown Heights. It's a largely African-American, Caribbean immigrant and African immigrant community, and also in Northern Crown Heights, a large Hasidic Jewish community. Um, Brooklyn, as you've probably heard, is known for these lovely churches and brownstones and all these wonderful things, family life, residential neighborhoods, but it's also known, as you've probably heard, for um, a lot of stigmatizing of, um, for high crime, poverty, insufficient infrastructure, um, you know, the list goes on and on, and it's only recently, actually, that Brooklyn's become the hot place to live because people are getting priced out of Manhattan. Um, this is our view from across the street, Wicksville. One of the largest housing projects in New York City, Kingsborough Houses, exists. Just to give you an idea, it's nestled in a residential community, which is very different from most museums. What you're seeing here is the senior center of Kingsborough, so they are... are, are are, uh, comprise most of our participants in our oral history project that we've had over the years. And um, they're also our biggest customers at our farmer's market that we have. Um, so I, I mentioned the two histories. The first history is the 19th century history. 11 years after slavery was abolished in New York State, 1827, you have a free black community that um, emerged. And it didn't, we, we, I can tell you a lot about this history, but it's better if you just come visit Weeksville. <laughs> but one of the things I want to point out that we draw upon later for our contemporary program is that it's what we call an intentional community. So you had a, a handful of black men who are land investors who lived in downtown Brooklyn who, after emancipation, bought up all of this property from former wealthy white landowners and sometimes slave owners. Brooklyn was all Dutch farms. Um, and divided up in smaller portions and deliberately sold it to other free black New Yorkers um, to create this community. And one of the reasons was because there was an, a racist law in the books in 1821 that said that black men had to own property to vote. So it was to ensure citizenship rights. It was not the same for white men. Um, so they did this, they advertised, this is an advertisement from the New York Times from 1855, but they also advertised in colored papers. Um, and it was very successful. Um, you had a, a high degree of property ownership, you had a high degree of laborers, entrepreneurship, people built their own institutions, churches, schools, uh, newspapers, anti-slavery organizations. It was a very powerful community and, um, as I said, completely erased. All the things that people were shut out socioeconomically, they created on their own. And so we really draw on that, that sensibility of independence and how people were able to do this with so few resources and how they did it, because we get a lot of questions. Um, the, the history, the 19th century history of Wixel represents um, what, you know, the silences and distortions that we're learning from visitors that they come with to the site. 
And there's lots of things that people are still grappling with that the site sort of confronts, uh, people confront. So people are still trying to wrap their heads around that slavery was not just a southern thing. Um, you know, they, they don't really know what it was like to, to live freely or to be a free citizen or to study, to know about post-emancipation societies. So they, they kind of know about slavery, they kind of know about civil rights, a little hazy on what happened between, except maybe a splash of the Harlem Renaissance or something. So we try to, to fill in those holes. Um, there's also this idea that, that people were in so much pain and suffering that they didn't build anything and they weren't resourceful um, and these stereotypes of, of poor people um, and people who are disenfranchised um, also being as dangerous and safe. And one of the most important that we draw on our contemporary program is that you know, we, we used to always get calls from people that they wanted images of people sort of escaping from the Underground Railroad and hiding behind bushes and mystery tunnels underneath the houses and that sort of thing, looking for very dramatic instances. And what we do at the site is talk about the everyday living, how people got their water, how they educated their children, how they fed themselves. You know, we talk about ordinary people and ordinary lives, which we think is pretty dramatic to do and pretty miraculous considering the circumstances. Okay, and this is just an image from our collection showing like how the people really react to these images we have of everyday people where they're like, they had pets? Where, weren't they angry and in pain? You know, they, they played music. Where did they get the guitar from? And they were hanging out. You know, they're very stunning images for people to sort of see what it means to be ordinary and, and be living in this time, but extraordinary at the same time. Okay, fast forward about 130 years. This is the, the year that Weeksville was discovered. Um, we know it was a heightened time. Uh, it's not accidental. Lots of assassinations in New York. M Malcolm X was shot uh, three years before in Harlem. You have um, lots of things going on in New York socioeconomically. White flight, urban decay, um, you know, urban renewal they were calling it. Lots of labor and transit sites. Very, very heightened time. Um, there was a community, a handful of every, they emphasize the founders, the everyday citizens who had their day jobs, who were a part of a community course at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn that was looking at doing neighborhood surveys, looking at the history of the neighborhood, and were actually walking the grounds looking for evidence of these historic neighborhoods. There was a guy who was an MTA engineer um, by his profession, but he also had a love for flying. He was a pilot. So they did something you could never do today in New York City. They rented a prop plane from Teterboro Airport and they flew over the area <laughs> looking for architectural evidence and found houses that were arranged in this pre-19th or late 19th century um, um, pattern that predates the modern grid street system. So the, the houses are actually perpendicular to the road and they turned out to be along this um, Native American trade path that became a Dutch colonial road called Andervlei means under the creek, which was anglicized to hunterfly. So they're called the hunterfly roadhouses. Um, of course, soon after they discovered the houses, we're going to, uh, the, the, they discover the history of the neighborhood. A lot of the historic houses in the area were going to be torn down to urban renewal and replaced by housing projects. The community rallied um, to save that history. You can imagine. They just find out that, you know, that this, this community exists and they're, not, they're going to lose all the evidence. So they weren't able to save all the houses, but they insisted on an archaeological excavation in 1968. This is just to give you a perspective. Those of you who know about the African burial ground in New York, it's 23 years before that. Very pioneering. Um, and they, they looked for evidence to document and the history and sort of make a case for the houses. You had people who were activists. You had 
um, long-term community residents who became activists. You had artists, you had children, you had scholars, you had everybody involved. It was a, it was a, a, a valiant effort. Um, this is just to show you the kind of appeals they made that were very grassroots, and you probably remember those mimeographs, some of you, and what we call dittos. On the right are Boy Scouts who were involved sitting on the steps of City Hall. They have a, a bag of artifacts that they used as evidence to testify uh, for protecting and saving the houses. Um, a lot of people came and gave their testimony. Um, it was successful. The houses were landmarked in 1970, 71, eventually on the National Register for Historic Places, and they were saved, and ever since they've been, you know, there's, all, there's been lots of challenges throughout the years. One of the things that we're also learning, um, mainly through our oral history work, is that a lot of the people who were involved in the early um, efforts because uh, we get this question all the time, how could they do it? Just like the 19th century, how did they create community? They had just 11 years, you know, and they did all these things. And we don't want people to think it's exceptional. We want people to think you can do this too. And so we try to document the context. So this is Joan Maynard, our matriarch, who led the struggle to save the houses for 30 years. Um, unfortunately, she's no longer with us. And she, what we're learning is that a lot of the people who came to Weeksville were also embedded in other activists and, and um, networks. So Joan was actually an artist and illustrator, and she had a deep friendship with this woman, um, Esther Cooper Jackson, who um, uh, uh, I, I wanted to mention just because she has a direct connection to Birmingham. Um, she moved to New York in the 1950s from Virginia, and she was raised in segregated schools, but before she came to New York, she worked with the Southern Negro Youth Congress to Virginia, and then in Birmingham, Alabama, to organize black women, tobacco workers, and steel workers. She um, eventually, with W.B. Du Bois and his wife, created this Freedom Wave journals that documented, li documented liberation um, movements and black, art, black arts movements. Joan, our matriarch of Weeksville, was the illustrator for <laughs> the journal, and they used to have all sorts of meetings. Um, and, you know, these are just to show you a few of the people, the remarkable people who were involved. These are the, I call them the Jocelyn Coopers. <laughs> um, Jocelyn, they're both Jocelyn Cooper Sr. And, and the daughter. Um, Jocelyn Cooper is a community activist whose family made a huge impact on civil rights in black Br Brooklyn. Her late husband, some of you may know him, Andrew Cooper, a beer company employee, journalist, and political columnist, sued New York State officials in the landmark case Cooper versus Power, challenging the arrangement of congressional di districts, um, charging that black citizens were denied the right to elect an authentic representative of their community. Winning the case, the court issued that the 12th district be redrawn, creating a new seat, and that's what made it possible for Shirley Chisholm, to be part, who was part of Cooper's political club, to run for that seat and become the first black woman member of Congress. And she was also, Shirley Chisholm was also involved in Weeksville. They have all these wonderful pictures of her helping out with the effort. Um, and then uh, he was also formed the, the City Sun, which is an important paper that some of you may be familiar with. I won't go into too much detail with here, but Betty Welch was involved in what she calls with education activism. Um, she was very much involved in the Ocean Hill Browns, Browns Hill, um, Teacher strike, month-long teacher strikes, very famous um, about uh, um, educational equity. And this is her daughter, Sharon, who is now a teacher in another state, who, that's a picture of her at the 1968 excavation, the dig. And, the, and Betty Welch learned about Weeksville through her daughter, who was at the school that's across the street from the dig. And they attribute to all of their, their, their love and education and, and um, you know, 
after that to Weeksville and their involvement in Weeksville. So a lot of people came through the student movement, I mean, just several different movements. So we try to emphasize that these were networks and coalitions that were able to do this and defend the history. Okay, so present day, um, what we do is we take from those two histories, the 19th century and the 1960s history, and we've created what we call historic and interpretive themes of things that we find that visitors have responded to in the stories that we tell when they come to the site. So focusing on sanctuary, making safe spaces, independence, self-determination, you know, possibility really is what we're, we're trying to sell. And what we've done, this is like really shortening a very long process over many years, but uh, what we've done is, is translate those into what we call our core values. And we have a long list of these core values that infuse our programming. This is how we explain why our programming may not look like 19th century historic. <laughs> Um, site programming, but it's very much connected to the history. Everything we do is connected to the history, and it relates to the contemporary, and it connects to social justice issues. Okay, so just to give you a glimpse of some of these um, core values that we've come up with, everyone who comes to the place, at first I was very offended by this, I'm like, what do you mean an oasis? But they come and they think, you know, of this space as being unsafe and dangerous, and people kept saying, oh, people are never going to come, it's off the beaten path, and, um, you know, some of you might have been there. Um, it's really on a major subway line, but it's more sort of a psychological thing. You have a 10-minute walk through a non-pedestrian area, and so it frightens people. Um, but we get up to 1,600 people at our music concerts. We showcase all sorts of different kinds of music that people don't associate with a historic site, um, like fiddle music and um, hip-hop or Cameroonian performers, um, depending on what theme. And we, we relate everything to history. This just gives you an example of one uh, when we tried it to incorporate directly into our first thematic programming, and it's a, it's amazing. And almost, I mean, how many people come to the site and say it's like an oasis? So we just had picked. We don't use that term as much anymore, but um, it's just something, an idea that we've picked up on and we sort of um, work with. Another core value to give you an idea is something we call normalcy, and I know it's relative. I mean. I, you know, don't let this fool you, I'm far from normal myself, but, but um, we, you know, it, it came from a realization that for people of color and disenfranchised communities, um, we've been primarily defined by um, deviance. And so the, the, the right to normalcy um, has really been a privilege for other people. And it, it has, we've noticed that people coming for the tours and the historic houses, it has a profound impact to talk about the everyday and to talk about ordinary people and talk about holistic lives. So people, it resonates with people because they know that that's what they experience. So we're very militant in talking about um, that aspect and, and what the normal is. Um, although we want people to feel comfortable and included, we also like to challenge people. So we, we do a lot of different things that we can, we can try to, um, stimulate um, discussion, stimulate people's ideas about connections to history. So this is um, actually the Blackjacks. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're an Afropunk group from South Africa <laughs> who performed for us at one of our, our, our concerts. We have a, a series of em called Emancipation Day where we've tried to reclaim the original Emancipation Day, July 5th, 1827. It was actually July 4th, but July 5th is when Black people came out to celebrate because of all sorts of issues. So we've kind of reclaimed that in um, contemporary program to give people an alternative to July 4th as well. And so every summer we sort of pick up a new theme of um, 
freedom and emancipation, depending on what's happening in the world. So last summer it was um, women's emancipation. When it was the 50th anniversary of um, African independence, we um, had a, a, a journalist, a Nigerian journalist, and a Nigerian no novelist named Teju, Teju Cole, who's on the bestseller list, come out and, and do a conversation that was really well attended talking about the, um, what it means to be a cosmopolitan citizen in, in um, uh, Lagos, Nigeria, and in New York, et cetera, et cetera. We also, when the natural disasters were happening in Haiti and there was terrible coverage demonizing Haiti, we took up um, Haitian independence and the Haitian Revolution, and we talked about that. So we use it as opportunity to talk about what freedom means in the contemporary moment. Um, we have abundance is another core value. We have an extensive green program where we have a farmer's market. We, it provides um, jobs, um, nutrition demonstrations, trying to address the, so apparently we're, we're a food desert, that's the term, <laughs> but trying to address some of the social justice issues. We're in what they call um, asthma alley in Brooklyn, Queens, and we have all sorts of um, health conditions that um, the communities are afflicted by, obesity and um, um, heart disease. And so we try to give um, sustainable options and, and, and do as much as we can in that regard, we're going to have these huge gardens um, in the back and the front of the, gar the houses to do all of this. So we have a second grade program that's called Green Week. So we have we have we have so much going on, more than I can tell you here. <laughs> but um, this is directly connected to creating your own safe spaces and the history as well. And these are some of the activities we do and the partnerships we do about sustainable living. You know, to tell people it's, it doesn't need to be an elite thing. You don't need to go to Whole Foods to be green and spend a lot of money that you can sort of work where you are and you, you don't, you always have enough to do what you need to do, just like the 19th century community, just like the 1960s community. And this is the last core value that I will share um, because it's very important because people think, again, that, you know, people are so burdened by pain that there's not parts of their life that they find joy in celebration. This is from an eco-kite making workshop that we had where the kids are basically just using plastic bags to create kites and you see the happiness and joy that they're experiencing, especially in the green space and how little it takes. Um, so I wanted to um, end there on a quote from one of our educators that I think sums up what the site means to people and how we sort of connect past to present, et cetera. Um, Weeksville is a space that encourages people to think of the future and to pursue their dreams. Children respond instantly to the houses and the open space. Many of the children and quite a few adults who visit Weeksville have never been to a historic house before. For many school-aged children, slavery is the only thing they know about African-American history. And when they speak of social change, they think of the Civil Rights Movement and the Underground Railroad. One little boy asked me to explain during a house tour why white Americans hate black Americans, and he asked me why slavery existed. How can educators answer these difficult questions while instilling a sense of hope in children? For me, Weeksville provides the perfect context for these conversations, a prescriptive to history curriculums which locate power in the hands of a few people. At Weeksville, people begin to, sorry. So sorry. At Weeksville, people begin to envision a world in which common people change society by planting a garden, by building a house, by establishing a refuge. And this is a rendering, but this is sort of what Wixel looks like today with the new facility with two smart education classrooms, a contemporary art gallery in the back there, an indoor performing arts space, a sound studio in the basement that we're hoping will be 
um, double as a part-time as an oral history studio for people to come and document their own histories. And the whole idea is to keep democratizing the process and correcting distortions and contemporizing history. Thank you. <laughs>